I want you to listen for a moment to how Dr. Jason Allen of Midwestern Seminary introduces this text. Dr. Allen writes, when you look over the 20th century and you realize all the innovation and change that took place, one historian has commented that a boy born in the year 1900 would have more in common with a boy living in the first century than with a boy living in the year 2000. He says, think of all the changes in the 21st and 20, uh, 20th and 21st centuries. Modern medicine, the automobile, the, the telephone, the computer, the internet, jet travel. Men going out into space and to the moon and back. He writes, but perhaps the most dramatic change in the 20th century may have been the splitting of the atom. During World War II, there was a great race against time to see if the Allies could develop a super weapon before the Germans. The Americans and British engaged in this project known as the Manhattan Project. The day finally arrived to test this new weapon out in the desert of New Mexico. No one knew what would happen exactly when the atom bomb was detonated. Some were even suggesting that to set it off would set off a chain reaction in the earth's atmosphere that would envelop the earth in a fireball and incinerate literally the entire globe. That was the fear. The leading scientists were there along with military leaders and political leaders. They were miles and miles away in bunkers watching through telescopes and connected to the bunkers uh, by cables. On the receiving end of the cables were gauges to register the explosive power of this bomb. When the bomb exploded, the gauges on the cables simply pegged out, totally incapable of recording the force of the explosion. Many of the greatest minds of the time had done all of their planning and all of their calculations, but their calculations turned out to be woefully inadequate, and the machinery that they had in place was hopelessly inept to be able to even capture and record for a second the force of this explosion. Dr. Allen writes, I wonder how many in the church have collectively underestimated who God is. Has any man ever understood His awesome power? Now guys, on this Father's Day, I thought of any number of subjects and scenarios that I could address. We could talk about prayer. We could talk about having the courage and the conviction of somebody like a Daniel. We could talk about a man and his call to missions. The subjects we could come up with would almost be endless. But I decided this week against going any of those directions. What do men meet, need most? What do dads need most? 
If we could clear away all of the clutter out of our lives and dig down deep to the very foundations of everything, what is it that you and I need the most? What is it that would change everything else and shape everything else and direct every one of those lesser subjects? It's this issue of encountering God. What could happen in your life and my life if we were to have a fresh encounter with God? I mean, if you and I really, truly had a fresh encounter with God. What could God do in your life? What could God do in your Sunday school class? What could God do in your family, in this church, and in our nation if the men who named the name of Christ truly, authentically had a fresh encounter with God? That was Isaiah's experience in this text. And I want you to understand that it defined the rest of his life. Imagine something happening in your life that defines the rest of your life. That's what Isaiah experienced. When Isaiah experienced God, when he encountered God, it changed everything else and gave him a new perspective. Dr. A.W. Tozer once said, The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. What I want us to see this morning is that an authentic encounter with God changes everything about your life. In American Christianity today, we've got way too much going on of what Dr. Michael Horton of Westminster Seminary calls a therapeutic, moralistic deism. Therapeutic, moralistic deism is when, when I say, I've got my little Jesus in my genie bottle. And when I need something, when I need some peace and comfort and assurance in my life, or when I'm going through something that I really need God, I'm going to take my little genie bottle off the mantle and I'm going to open it up and get my little Jesus out and get him to fix everything about my life. And when he's fixed everything and things are back like I want them, I'm going to put my little Jesus back in my genie bottle and cap it and put it up on the mantle again till I need him again. Therapeutic, moralistic deism. Folks, that is not the Christianity of the Bible. What I want you to see this morning is we need to see the power and the sovereignty of God. We need to see the power and the sovereignty of God. The Bible tells us here that Isaiah's vision took place in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, later on, you can go back to 2 Chronicles 26 and you can read more about King Uzziah's 52-year-long reign. For the most part, for the most part, God was pleased with King Uzziah and God prospered him and he gave King Uzziah a 52-year-long reign and much of the land prospered under King Uzziah. Now, he did mess up. 
later on in life. The Bible says that his heart was filled with pride and he went into the temple and he took the incense that only the priests were to offer and he began offering incense unto the Lord. The high priest came in with 80 other priests and they said, King, you can't do this. And he got angry at them. And the Bible says when he got angry at him, God struck him with leprosy and they had to rush him out of the temple and for the rest of his life he had to live in separate quarters. But again, for the most part, God gave him a good reign and it was a good reign for the people and the nation. And so I'm sure that his death or news of his death would have naturally left a lot of people filled with some degree of uncertainty. What's going to happen now in the nation? Now, we're not told that Isaiah's vision took place, whether it took place before or after Uzziah's death we assume afterwards but the text just simply says in the year that he died but God was giving Isaiah a very unique vision and that vision was that earthly powers can come and go the earth itself can go through times of great uncertainty and unrest but nothing that happens here on this earth changes the fact that God is still on his throne in Psalm 90 the Bible says from everlasting to everlasting you are God from before the time that God created this earth in Genesis 1 until after the time that this earth is dissolved as we know it, as we're told in 2 Peter 3 God will still be on His throne and nothing will ever change that fact God is sovereign that's the lesson Job had to learn in the book of Job. God never did answer Job some of the questions that he was looking for. But God said, Job, were you around when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, Job, do you have understanding of these things? Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of or, uh, Orion, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Job, can you send out the lightnings and the storms that they may go and say to you, here we are? God's lesson to Job was, Job, you weren't there and you've not done all these things and I have. Job, I'm God, you're not and you're going to have to trust me. Folks, I take the sovereignty of God to be one of the most comforting doctrines in all the Word of God. We can go through troubling times. We can go through uncertain times. Some of you are experiencing those in your life right now. Some of you have been to the doctor and gotten that dreaded doctor's report. Some of you have had your mates die. Some of you are going through tough circumstances at work and facing scenarios there that you never dreamed you would face there simply because you named the name of Jesus Christ. You've told me about some of these things. 
Some of you are going through trials and tribulations you never dreamed you would have to go through in your life. And and at times like that, like Isaiah, you and I need to have a fresh encounter with the living God and we need to understand that He is still on His throne. Paul said in Romans 8, 28 that all things work together. He didn't mean that all things are good Because there are bad and evil things going on in the world. But he said all things work together for the good of those who love God and they're called according to His purpose. All things. Not just some things. You know what that says? The thing that you hate most in your life that's going on right now might be the very thing that God is using the most to draw you to Himself. And he says all things, everything works together, not in an isolated fashion, but in, 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 a, in a union together. God is caught in the big picture of your life and my life. God is forming and fashioning everything together in, in, in your life that one of these days you might be able to look back and see his thumbprint over all of your circumstances and be grateful for it. He says everything's working together for good. And it's not a blank check to everybody. He says it's for those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. That's God's promise to His children. Folks, we need to realize that this world will always be uncertain. Every generation has had times of great uncertainty. King Solomon wrote that there is nothing new under the sun. Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Folks, a planet wrecked by the curse and consequences of sin can never, ever, ever be the source of our ultimate hope. Our hope as believers is in a God who never changes. The Bible says He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, Isaiah needed a new perspective and the people needed a new perspective. Back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, God said, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though, they, uh, though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. All you need to do is go back through these previous five chapters to see some of the things that were going on. In verse 21, he writes how the faithful city has become a whore. She who once was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, now only murderers. You you read on in other places, chapter 2, verse 22. He says, stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils. Of what account is man? Our life is but a vapor. Why do we put our faith and trust in men instead of in God? Over in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them, for they brought evil on themselves. Boy, now there's a verse for our modern times. 
What was God's invitation to him? Back in chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk together in the light of the Lord. The people needed a new perspective. They needed to see God's power and His sovereignty and His authority in their lives. Isaiah himself needed to see that along with the rest of the people. And what did they need in their lives? They needed repentance. It took the death of a good king for Isaiah to come to this understanding and see this. What will it take in your life and my life that we would be drawn humbly on our knees before God? What will it take? And you look at our nation today and everything that's going on in our nation and I, and I happen to think with all the things that are going on in our nation probably God is trying to get our attention and He's trying to get our attention in the church and trying to remind us what He said in 2 Chronicles 7.14 that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn away from their sins then I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land boy talk about a verse for today there it is what's it going to take today for the church to be called back to God and be called back to prayer and be called back to the things of God what's it going to take for that to happen in our families what's God going to have to do he's shaking the foundations and trying to get our attention are we listening he got Isaiah's attention. And Isaiah saw the power and the sovereignty of God. Second thing I want you to see with me. We need to see the pride and the sin of man. There in verse 5, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tongs, uh, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. you got to wonder, what was Isaiah's mood as he went into the temple that day? Was he filled with pride? Was he... Filled with complacency, exactly what was going on in his life. We're not allowed to see that, but what we are told in the text. When Isaiah saw God, he saw himself in a whole new light. You know, sometimes we come to church and I've heard people say, Pastor, you know what I'm praying for today? You know what I hope happens today? I hope God just comes down in our midst and shows up. And of course, that's all of our prayers all the time. But one thing that also comes to my mind when, when we think things like that, could we, could we stand His coming like that? You read different passages in the Bible when God really showed up. And I mean when God really showed up in the midst of a people. And you know what happened? 
the ground would open up and swell, uh, swallow up thousands or plagues would break out or whatever. Things like that happened in the New Testament when the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, when God showed up, the Bible says he was in worship in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and all of a sudden he heard this mighty voice behind him and he turned to look and see who it was and it was the glorified Christ. And when John, the beloved apostle, the one who had rested on Jesus' breast there at the Lord's Supper. When John caught this vision of God, you know what the Bible says he did? The Bible says he fell prostrate on his face before God and John, just like Isaiah, thought he was about to die. That's what happens when God shows up. Here was Isaiah, the prince of the prophets. He wrote more about the coming Messiah than any of the other prophets. He wrote so much about the Messiah that sometimes the book of Isaiah is referred to by scholars as the gospel of Isaiah. As though Isaiah as a book should, should fall right alongside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel of Isaiah. Because all the way back there in the Old Testament, he's writing so much about Jesus. Prince of the prophets. God shows up. And Isaiah thinks he's about to die. He says, woe is me for I am undone. John Calvin wrote, if you don't know who God is, you can't really understand who you are. Because Isaiah had seen God, he saw himself more clearly. It was actually Isaiah's vision of himself that opened the door for what happened next in verses 6 and 7 when the, when the seraphim flew over and touched his lips with that burning coal. What is it that Isaiah experienced? He experienced, now, now listen to this, he experienced conversion. You know why I've come to that conclusion? Because when that happens to him, when that seraphim comes over and touches his lips, he thought he was going to die and touches his lips and, and says, your sin is now atoned for and your guilt is taken away. Evidently that had never happened to Isaiah before. Imagine that. Here was a guy who was a priest in the temple who went about religious duties. And until Isaiah chapter 6, apparently the prophet Isaiah was a lost man. He was religious but lost. You read the Bible on one level, and especially in the Old Testament, and you could almost come to the conclusion that maybe God is against religion. Maybe God is against the liturgy of worship. And that would be a 100% wrong conclusion. We were created to worship. And in the New Testament we're commanded to meet together publicly, corporally and worship God. We, we are made for this. We are made for a relationship with God and worship with God. But as the overflow of conversion. Some people try to put church attendance or baptism or liturgy or whatever it is. They try to put that in place as a substitute for knowing God. It is a poor substitute it won't work 
We need to be saved first to authentically worship God. And that's what happens to Isaiah here. Once we're redeemed, then like Isaiah, we can have a religion that is pure and undefiled. God allowed Isaiah to see his holiness and then see his own self for exactly who and what he was. And Isaiah saw himself as somebody who was utterly undone and he had absolutely nothing by way of goodness to offer to God. Isaiah saw more clearly in a smoke-filled temple that day than he had ever seen in his, in his entire life. This week in Columbus, Ohio, at the Southern Baptist Convention, we, we heard one of the most powerful testimonies I think I've ever heard in my entire life. You can go online and listen to it. The testimony points out the fact that sometimes what happens, sometimes what happened to Isaiah may happen in an instant. Sometimes it may be over the course of weeks or months or even a few years. Dr. Rosario Butterfield gave some of her testimony. She graduated from Ohio State University with a, with a Ph.D. in English, went on to teach English and feminist studies at Syracuse University in New York. She was a radical left-wing feminist and a prolific writer and speaker in those circles and she was also a practicing lesbian. She commented while writing for a local newspaper on these issues, one article that she wrote generated tons and tons and tons of hate mail and also tons and tons and tons of support mail. She said one letter, however, stood out among them all. She said, I got so many letters. I had a box over here for the hate mail and a box over here for those saying, you go girl, tell them. She said this one letter, though, stood out in a profound way. A local Presbyterian minister wrote the kindest, the most straightforward and honest letter to her. And the way that it was written and the questions that he raised caused her later on that evening to go back to the recycle bin and dig through it and find that letter again. And she said she uncrumpled that letter and laid it out on her desk. And she said for a solid week, every time I would go back by my desk, I, I would read that letter again. And in my heart and mind, I would have to deal with some of those questions that he was raising. She said, at the end of that week, I contacted him. And he and his wife, Dr. Ken Smith, and his wife, Floyd, a kind, gracious, conservative, Bible-believing, Bible-loving minister and his wife, full of conviction and full of grace, began pouring themselves into me. They invited me over to dinner. So began a, a long friendship. He deeply challenged me about my lifestyle, she said, but in a very winsome way. In the midst of all this, she said, I was determined in my radical left-wing feminism and my lesbian lifestyle, I was going to write a book against the Christian right. 
Christian conservatives. And it was going to be a barn burner. I was going to fillet them. She said, but before, or in the midst of all of my research, she said, I thought, you know what? Before I write a book against Bible-believing Christians, maybe first of all I need to read their Bible. She says, for two years I read and studied the entire Bible through in detail seven different times in two years. And she said, something began to happen. She said, it ended up that more of God got in me than me, myself. His Word got in me to such an extent, more of it and more of God got into me and just pushed me out of the way until I was gloriously saved. She's married to a minister today in Durham, North Carolina and mother of four children. But I want you to hear what she's saying. Dads, I want you to listen to this because I want to ask you, has anything like this ever happened in your life? That you've come to a time and point in your life that more of God and more of God's Word got into you than you that lived there in your heart. That's the key. That's the radical transformation from the inside out that the Bible talks about. God's Word getting in us, pointing out our sin and drawing us to faith in Jesus Christ and radically changing us from the inside out. That's what the Bible's talking about when it says being born again, born of the Spirit, born from above. The Bible's not talking about just coming down some aisle and filling out a commitment card and saying, hey, I must be saved now, I'm in. The Bible is talking about you and I getting along with God on our faces and God doing something in your life that only God can do. Has that ever happened to you, fathers? That's what happened to Isaiah. We learn surprisingly to us in our society today that the way up to God is not up. The way is down. When we're down on our knees in humility and brokenness before God, then God changes us and raises us back up. How do we miss this in the Bible? Jesus said to the Pharisees and the scribes, Guys, do you not understand the publicans and the harlots are, uh, and the Pharisee, uh, no, rather the, the publicans and, and the harlots are getting into the kingdom of God ahead of you. He said that to the religious crowd, the leaders, the Pharisees and the, and, and, and the scribes and the Sadducees. Because the outcast in his society, the publicans and the harlots, when they heard Jesus, they were broken before him and they were drawn to him and they were humble before him and they wanted change, they wanted transformation. And Jesus said to the religious crowd, they're getting into heaven ahead of you. Guys, don't you see this? I wonder if Jesus would ever ask the same today. 
God declared to Isaiah, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now folks, how about that for a good news proclamation? Reminds me of what Jesus said on one occasion, if the Son shall make you free, you will be free indeed. That's good news. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And those who come to faith in Christ and have this life-changing encounter, Paul says in Romans 8.31, Who shall be against us if God is for us? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody can be against you if Christ is for you. Because Craig, Paul goes on to say the one who could legitimately judge you is the one who instead hung on the cross and died for you. But we need to see our sin and our pride and be broken before God. That's freedom. That's forgiveness. And that's the freedom and the forgiveness that Isaiah experienced. Third thing. We need to see the proclamation and sending of converts. Look at verse 8. Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. As somebody has correctly said, penitence should be preachers. Penitents should be preachers. Isaiah is a new man. As a new man, he hears the voice of God. The Bible says the unredeemed man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. But once redeemed, Isaiah hears God. He perceives exactly what God is asking of him. And God entertains a question. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Folks, that question right there shows a beautiful burning desire on the heart of God. What is God after? God is after man's redemption. Man might have sinned against God, but God is the divine pursuer. People sometimes erroneously say, but preacher, isn't God harsh? No. Jesus Jesus said, you want a vision of what God is like? Jesus said, I'll give you a vision of what God is like. Here's a shepherd that has 99 sheep, uh, has 100 sheep. All day long, he's had them out to pasture. Comes in at night, puts them in the sheepfold, begins 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. Let me start over. 98, 99. Oops, I'm missing one. Now, what would you and I do? You and I in the world back then with all the beasts, the ravenous beasts out in the field. We'd say, hey, you know what? I'm a pretty good shepherd. I took a hundred sheep out this morning and I've come back tonight after them being out in the fields and the, and the hills and the valleys and among all these wild beasts and, and, and they've come back and there's 99 of them. I've only lost one. I've done pretty good. Go to bed and night sleep. But Jesus said, you want to know what God's like? 
The shepherd puts the 99 in charge of assistance and he goes out and he looks for that one until he finds it and brings it back rejoicing. That's what God's like. Aren't you glad that you and I serve a God that loves the lost and wants to see the lost saved? Boy, that was a weak amen. Aren't you glad we serve a God that loves the lost? A God that went after you in some years past and kept pursuing you and convicting you and speaking to your heart. Aren't you glad that God did that and you were saved? That's the kind of God we serve. And so what's his question? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? What's Isaiah say? Lord, hear him. I send me. As one has well said, the church that loses sight of the Great Commission has ceased even to be a church. The Bible says that God has chosen through the foolishness of preaching to save those who will believe. God is still asking the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Paul said, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? I tell you what, we're going to stand before God one day, each one of us, I believe, at the judgment seat of Christ. And one of the questions he's going to ask me, and one of the questions he's going to ask you is, who have you brought with you? Now I want you to notice from verse 9 and following, the task was not going to be an easy one for Isaiah. Isaiah was going to preach. But most were going to be hardened. But I want you to notice that in the midst of the hardening, notice also that God was going to preserve for himself a remnant. God always preserves for himself a remnant. Folks, you and I can be assured that as we engage our culture today with the gospel, everybody's not going to listen. In fact, probably most won't listen. And to the degree that the world is in the church, even in the church, many won't listen. But the promise of Scripture is some will. And for those, you go and tell, and I go and I tell. And it wasn't going to be easy at all for Isaiah. In fact, you know what history tells us? One of the kings to follow, a king by the name of Manasseh, ended up taking a saw and sawing the prophet Isaiah in two. But you know where Isaiah is today? He's in that great cloud of witnesses. Amen? Men, the question I have for you and me today is have we ever had an encounter with God that changed everything else about your life? Have you ever been born again? Have you ever been so convicted of your sin that you knew without God's grace and mercy in Christ you would die and go to a Christless eternity? 
Have you ever been radically saved and changed? Become that new creation in Christ that the Bible talks about. That encounter with God that should literally change everything else about your life and my life. It ought to change how we do everything in life, men. Everything about our life, what your life and my life is wrapped up in, what our passions and desires and hopes are, what the activity of our life is all about, it ought to change the whole agenda of our life. That's biblical Christianity. And you know, even after that happens, sometimes we have to confess, we get mud on our shoes, don't we? We go out into the world, we get mud on our shoes, we get dirty out in the world, and, and that fresh encounter, repentance and revival and coming back to the Lord, that needs to happen from time to time, doesn't it? Has that ever happened in your life? And it's not going to be easy where God might call you, where God might send you, how God might use you. I mentioned a moment ago, some of you have spoken about in your office environment how tough things are because you're a Christian. Where God might send you, what God might do in your life might not, might not be easy. Never has been. As Baptists, our, our forefathers were the Anabaptists, A-N-A, Baptist. It was meant as a term of derision. Anabaptist just simply means the rebaptizers, because they were insisting on a regenerate church membership that after somebody came to faith in Christ, then they needed to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Our Anabaptist forefathers that were the radical reformers back in the Reformation. You had the magisterial reformers like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and others trying to re reform things from within the church. But then you had the Anabaptists, the radical reformers calling for, for a new redeemed church. You know what, it was, what was said about our Anabaptist forefathers? Now think about this. From the time... They were saved in their, in their culture, in their culture back then, because we think we might have it tough today. In their culture back then, from the time they were saved until, they, until the time they gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. You know how long it was on average? 18 months. 18 months. From the time you were saved until the, day, until the time you died for your stand for Christ. You gave your life on average 18 months. Would we be willing to do something like that today? It would be hard, wouldn't it? Again, men, has God done something in your life that has changed you from the inside out and redefined what you're about in your life would you bow with me in prayer this morning please have you had that life changing encounter with God if not I want to ask you not to rest until you do Get into God's Word. Get into prayer. Ask God. Beg God to convert your soul.
Beg Him to convert your soul. Perhaps today you know that you've been converted. No doubt about it. Maybe today you need to open your eyes that you might see afresh and anew the power and sovereignty of God. Things may be more topsy-turvy in your life right now than you ever remember. The very foundations of your life might be being shaken. But remember, God is not shaken. He's still on His throne. What might you need to learn right now? Perhaps today you need to understand, and I need to understand in a fresh new way, God's commission. Those He changes, He sends. He sends out. Dads, are we wrapped up in God's agenda, God's mission? Is that what helps shape what your life is about? Lord, speak to our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.